0: When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes. And use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your cue. Welcome to the Hunt of Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Nation where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 84, Celebration Meals and Roadkill Responsibilities. On this episode of of Huntivore, Nick steps in some really deep thoughts. Do sportsmen have a responsibility to salvage roadkill? He gives some explanation of his own opinion on this question, and maybe makes it a little bit bigger than what he needs to. He also switches gears and jumps into his archery dough celebration meal. He went with a venison tenderloin tartare, going super high class. He's going to talk about how this preparation brought some excitement to an already celebratory meal. So, hey, step in and get ready to uh, do some thinking on this episode of Huntivore. You ever get in one of those, like, thought trains where you just can't get off of, and you wonder, like, why did I spend all that time on that thought train? Well, this might be one of those. Because we are going to talk about the idea of salvaging animals. And I know that's been an idea that I've poked around... Uh, with, I joke around with it, you know, calling ourselves rednecks and picking up deer that have been hit by by vehicles. But at the same time, I, I kind of ask myself this question that is this all of a sudden an ethical question that I'm asking? Are, are we, am I, I should say, taking this a step further in not only just being able to acquire some more meat, but at the same time thinking about the critters that I'm chasing and then wishing that it, it wasn't always this way. Our interactions with wildlife are, are happening more and more, either by design or by accident. And in fact, the accident aspect of it is costing millions of dollars to normal Americans and in car damage or even injury. They get medical bills at this point, And I say this cumulatively. Like we're not all spending millions. But at the same time it's not cheap to fix your car after you get it all smashed up by a deer. They do a lot of damage. And then it comes to the part where now you've had this animal that is expired or is injured. And what to do with it now? Um, for most situations... That's the end of the story. The deer goes into the ditch, and then nature takes its course. The corpse is then reclaimed by by nature, be it by scavengers, predators, or even just rot in general. It just happens. And so I posed a question online through a story on Instagram because I wanted to put some feelers out and to see how people were reacting to this. Because, obviously, I've got my own opinion, and with this platform, I can go ahead and tell it to you. So I will in just a moment. But the idea is, is do we as sportsmen and sportswomen have a duty to utilize wounded and killed deer by other people? In the fact that if there's an accident alongside the road, do we, as the hunting and fishing community, have a responsibility to do anything with that critter that is now dead and deceased on the side of the road. And I, I kind of took a look at it. By regulations, no, we have no responsibility. There's no obligation to stop and pick up the deer. You're not forced to by uh, authorities to, to get it out of the way. Um, in fact, I think Department of Transportation ends up picking them up at some point. But there's even different states that discourage uh, this practice, picking up uh, roadkill animals. I know fur bearers. Uh, in some states, you need to get a permit if you're going to then take a road killed uh, coyote or fox or whatever fur bearer you are at that point. I know in Michigan, I have utilized the new online salvage tag, which has made things very nice. In other states, granted, this is maybe an extreme uh, example, but like Alaska, any big game animal is put in that's killed on the highway or side of the road goes into a program to feed uh, hungry folks or even to be used in soup kitchens or uh, food pantries. But you're discouraged from being able to pick that up. You you lawfully cannot pick up uh big game animals there's other states where yeah you need to have a uh a ticket at that point or a uh that there was a crash and then you have to be able to get that so regulations are all over the place they are not just set across the board so by regulation like no you're it's not set that that you should do that um but yeah again here in the midwest it's one of those things that folks have taken upon as as opportunity And by title, I guess, as sportsmen and sportswomen, no, it again is not an obligation. Where is the fair chase? Because you're not chasing this animal. You're merely just happening upon it. Where's the pursuit? You yourself did not pursue this animal, did not engage in it, and did not pull the trigger. And in fact, using a vehicle is not a legal means of take. Um... Yeah, you can't you can't choose between archery and shotgun or Ford and Chevy. It's not a legal mean. But then at that point, it's also not sustainable because how many deer can you hit with a vehicle nowadays that uh, can withstand multiple deer crashes? I'm sure there are some out there. And, you know, the, the old square bodies, those Chevy square bodies, they can take a punishment. So if you're driving an older vehicle, maybe that's an idea. But at the same time, it also isn't very reliable either. You need to have, be in the right spot to uh, to get that animal correctly. You don't want to do up utmost damage to it because then you're kind of without. But so as a sportsman, it it's also not an obligation. And then if there's the uh, the stigma, I guess, around it that it's it's seen as as garbage food. You're you're basically digging out of a dumpster, and it's viewed as gross and disgusting but at the same time like you know we get to harvest the usable parts of that animal so then why why is this something that we or at least I choose to do other than a strange habit of being a stingy country bumpkin or even old timers wanting to try a new jerky recipe or make some more ground why is it that me and, and folks who are probably listening to this podcast really dive into the idea of salvaging game alongside a road. And to be honest, I'm going to give you my opinion here. I think it's a self-imposed responsibility that I take, that I have. It's not owed to, I guess, anybody in the state. I can go get my own deer. I I have the means to buy a tag. Is it is it more fun that way? Well, yeah, because at that point there's there's a pursuit aspect, there's a sportsman's aspect where I have to chase down the animal in a fair chase situation and really pit my skill against this critter. But at the same time, like I don't look at this these critters as like adversaries. I enjoy white tails, and I know for many of these people, for many folks listening too, you enjoy. Pronghorn, mule deer, elk—you name it. Big game, uh, critter. You not only just appreciate these animals, but you begin to identify with with that species as something that that you just look to. It makes you happy. You desire that a for food, but then at the same time, you see the beauty of each of these critters as they are as they are put before us. And I look at it as like a bit of a responsibility that that I chase these animals and I see not just a cool looking creature, but I see like evidence of the creator. I see where these animals have excelled and have evolved along to become the way that they are. And it's not just by accident, but this is just a pure, amazing, God-given creature that we should appreciate. And I feel like a little bit of myself breaks when I see a deer kicked off to the side left to rot. You know, I love watching these these animals in the wild, and I love having interactions from the stand with them. And to see them in this light then of merely like a, uh, a ticket because of an accident and now a statistic and a number and a price tag Put on it onto a, a fix-it shop. You know that it just seems like a very heartless way to pursue things. But at the same time, that's that's our given present reality. I feel that that animal should be celebrated at some point in its in its existence. That kind of pulled up out of the ditch. It did nothing to get hit by that car. It was just being an animal. But because of our human interaction, maybe we weren't paying attention. Maybe we were on our phone while we should. We, we were texting when we should have been driving. Maybe we were just driving just a little too fast. Or maybe the deer was just not also watching for traffic and the incident happened. But now that it's happened, like, I feel like the deer is getting the raw end of the deal because now it's dead. We get our vehicle fixed and we move on with life. I feel like there should be some sort of celebration for that animal. And maybe I'm getting down into specifics. Maybe am getting mushy-gushy because of a particular animal. But I even think about it just as the idea of being able to, to salvage something. To then elevate that critter that otherwise would that just rot into the ground. Is rotting into the ground for a whitetail? A bad thing? Well, no. I don't think so. It happens every day. Without us knowing or without us around, deer die constantly. You know, they're constantly being bored, and they're constant I shouldn't say constantly, but they're seasonally being bored, and incidences happen where deer die and life goes on. The the flesh is consumed by by predators, the bones are eventually chewed on by rodents. Uh, decomposition happens and whatever's left and pretty soon all that nutrient that that animal had taken up is now put back into the soil and the great circle of life happens all over again so is it necessarily like a bad ending no maybe it's a maybe it's a fitting ending but i just feel like humans cause that interaction through our negligence, through our not paying attention, through our going too fast on the highway, we now have basically caused this, and yet it's it's an unfinished story. And that's where I think that conscious hunters and anglers who have the opportunity and have the means and the, the cunningness to be able to go and salvage these animals that have been hit by, by other humans I think it's a nod to the animal at this point. I think we're really giving a celebration to this critter's life, and then applying it into a worthy meal, even if it is you know a hind quarter that eventually gets turned into burger. You get to you talk about that on the package. You you write you you mark it on on the package. Like maybe you write salvage. Maybe you write roadkill. But at the same time, it becomes another discussion piece. It becomes something that you talk about later as you're cooking with it, as you're making a meal with it that you either have for yourself or share with your friends and family. I know in my case, I label all of mine Sal and Sally. If it's a buck, it gets the Sal tag. If it's uh, if it's a dough, it gets the, the term Sally. But it gives me an an opportunity to maybe try something new that, you know, I I've I've talked about before that like there's just not this emotional weight to to using a piece of meat that maybe isn't going to go well. You know, I'm I'm going to try a recipe that maybe is going to be getting fed to the dog because I I don't do something right or I, I'm playing with new new seasonings and I may not like it. But the idea is, I see that as a better way to go than having it just continued to not be used to basically just be gone, gone to the dirt. So I posed this out in a Instagram story and I had a couple folks that expounded a little more on their understanding. Uh, part of the okayist Hunter podcast, Greg Tubbs. We've got a chance to do some, some discussion backwards and so, or back and forth. And anyway, I, I posed this to him and, uh, Here's a quote from him. He says, I feel a personal responsibility as a hunter to try and use these animals as our resource. We are the purveyors of our environment, and we are really bad at it. Humans are really good at wasting resources. No matter if I killed it with a weapon or someone hit it with a vehicle, someone is looking for food somewhere in your community. A lot of high-quality protein goes to waste on the side of America's highways because people are afraid of a little work or just have no clue on what they are missing out on. I do feel it's our responsibility to not let the resource, like venison, go to waste. Yes, there are exceptions. Semi-trucks and fast-moving vehicles do major damage to deer, almost rendering them unusable. We have to pick up and choose our row kill. Greg, I find that that is just an awesome statement. You know, we we are wasteful critters. We are wasteful beings. Maybe it's not in our our being but in our laziness we we're wasteful. And so maybe this is a step forward for us as a as a community to finally make a stand and say we're going to be less wasteful. What is that image of a hunter or somebody alongside the road taking off a leg quarter. I know myself, I've, I've had two different, uh, reactions to that. I have happy beeps from other drivers as I'm pulling out a backstrap. And maybe it's a, a nod to saying thank you. Maybe it's a, Hey, you know, good on you for doing that. What a, what a brave move to do. And the other reaction I've got is utter disgust, shock and awe. Look, Look at this, this animal over here picking off of a off of another. But at the same time, it's it's wonderful venison that we choose to feed to our families. And if it's there, why not use it? We go through this whole idea too that that maybe letting it rot and in back into the soil, letting it decompose, let the nutrient flow back thro- flow back on through it's not a bad thing but at the same time didn't we didn't we cause that interaction didn't we cause that accident so greg thank you so much for your uh for your words there so yeah when it comes to uh the conclusion of my little uh food for thought here is it our responsibility well lawfully no uh as sportsmen and women no As just being people. No. But as folks who want to make a change in how hunters and anglers are viewed. Not just as people who go and kill animals. But people who also use the wonderful gift that we have. That we take what would be wasted and we turn it back into an amazing treasure. That... That wasted gold, be it a backstrap, a hind quarter, a shoulder, that could be turned into a meal and salvaged. Maybe those looks of shock and awe that people are giving us while we are being bold and taking the hide off of an animal right there in rush hour traffic. Maybe it's also a, a look of wonder. Why would they do that? Why would they stoop that low? What What makes folks find and salvage these deer and as folks who are I would say a brother and sisterhood of, of venison eaters we should probably continue to wave that flag of this is amazing stuff and we don't want it to go to waste we want to be able to pick up our species we want to be able to make a change for the better because heck, heaven knows things are always going in the wrong direction maybe this is one area we can start going in the right direction for those that are apart of the buzzard club. I tip my hat to you and happy hunting. Just wanted to take a time out and say, thank you to the listeners for tuning in. It really does mean a lot. I would also appreciate that if you haven't already left a rating or review, uh, to go ahead and do that. It all helps folks find us and get on board using and enjoying their wild game. more. Feel free to chat with us and ask questions either on Facebook or the Huntivore, or Instagram at Huntivore. Got a recipe you think is dynamite and want to share? Or have some show topic ideas? Email us at huntivore at gmail.com. For even more hunting and fishing podcasts by real, relatable sportsmen, head over to Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, which happens to be a 2% for conservation company. Who give one percent of their earnings and one percent of their time, helping out the wildlife and wild places we all love. Now, back to the show. Another topic that I wanted to cover, at least on this episode, was the idea of celebration meals—a meal that is going to be had, maybe not the uh, right after the animal is is killed, but at least at that point where the animal has been killed, processed, and the meat is now ready for consumption. That maybe there's been some days aging uh, in the fridge or or hanging, but the idea that the butchering has happened, and it's now the culmination of all those efforts into the first taste of that animal. And so I kind of put together a working definition of that celebration meal. And I, I kind of alluded to it a meal prepared for or by the hunter to celebrate the hunt and usually the first taste of that particular animal. I seem to find that as I ask these questions to hunters and folks who partake in the wild harvest, that First off, the meal is not going to have a whole lot of alterations to it. There's not going to be a huge processing that's going to happen to that meat. It's going to be either served uh, whole cut or at least like cooked whole cut and then broken down, either sliced up uh, for presentation or just served as is. It ends up uh, being shared with others, whether you're sharing it with your family or with your friends that were with you on the hunt or helped you uh, acquire it. There, there's an element that it's it's not just a, a meal had by oneself, but it's a communal meal at this point where you're going to be giving some of this taste away, especially of the first animal. It, it ranges anywhere from like super... Uh, super well done to the amount of like effort that put into preparing it or it could be all the way at the other end where it's literally salt pepper heat and serve but again it goes along with that idea that it's there's not a lot of alteration to it a few pieces that usually end up going into a celebration meal be it backstrap tenderloin heart and i've even known folks to start out right with the liver uh being that those high nutritious pieces like the heart and liver they go quickly and they don't last very long in the freezer so using those as quick as possible is always a great idea at the same time uh backstrap not a lot has to happen to it in order for it to be tender and delicious same with the tenderloin it is very tender to begin with why not enjoy it at its peak performance being fresh? So those are my thoughts a little bit on that celebration meal. And it can range from any cut that you're you're going for. It can be ranged into any way you're preparing it. But there isn't a lot that happens about the alteration. It's usually a whole cut. And the idea that it is that celebration of the hunt itself and succeeding that. I had the chance to take my own celebration meal to the next level. And my wife cur- or, uh, recently got a new job, and she's really enjoying this new pace of life, but it was we hadn't had the uh, chance yet to celebrate not only me getting this dough, but at the same time we wanted we to be able to just sit down together in this little mini date night and celebrate her getting this new job and talk a little bit about what she was doing with it. I really wanted to go high-end. I really wanted to kind of knock it out of the park and do something different, but at the same time really elevate the amount of flavor that I was bringing to this. So it was more like an appetizer date that I was making, and I went to the full extent of going raw in this preparation. Yes, I went with venison tartare, something that uh, even with domestic meat, people are already kind of nervous about. There's a risky business when it comes to serving anything raw just because of the amount of bacteria and illnesses that can be associated with that. Uh, raw meat is just one of those things that there's a reason we cook. You know, We want to be able to not hurt ourselves in the process, but at the same time there is a dining aspect that it comes to eating something cooked versus something raw. There's also that texture element that this was going to be brand new territory that, you know, we eat steaks that are rare, but at the same time now we're going beyond rare and beyond blue. Like this is literally just a raw piece of meat. So I entered with precaution and hesitation, but I knew at some point it was going to be, hey, you got to shit or get off the pot. You're going to have to really do this. Uh, You're going to have to really like rip the throttle on making this happen. So when it comes to a raw preparation, there's a couple things that I really had to take into account. First, I wanted this to be the as fresh as it could be. I processed that dough. I let it uh, age in the refrigerator. Um, I was actually getting it spritz of a red wine vinegar just to make sure that I wasn't casing the uh, the carcass as was inside of this, this refrigerator. Uh, casings where the outside gets... Uh, basically barked up kind of like jerky and then it lets doesn't let any moisture out because it's now all sealed inside so i just hit it with a little bit of that vinegar doubles up the vinegar is also acidic so it keeps the surface of the meat uh from growing mold or bacteria or anything like that and so that was one way that i was going to keep this preparation as clean as possible so we want it to be fresh we want it to be clean and it's going to be cold I did take the tenderloins and put them into the freezer for a week. It was still warm and muggy here in Michigan at that point, And so I really wanted to make sure that I got these nice and cold and uh, the freezer was just the easy way for me to do that so that I knew that it was going to be taken care of. Now my equipment that I was going to be able to use. I also wanted that to be cold. I wanted the uh, plate that was going to, or the, excuse me, the uh, serving bowl that I was going to be in. I wanted that to be cold. I wanted it to be super clean as well. Um, And same for the elements that was going in. I didn't want this room temperature, cold mixture going in because then it's you have this temperature change, and maybe that's not going to work well within the meal. And the whole thing is, is I prepared this just before serving. So I'm creating, I'm making the different elements, and the last thing to come to the assembly is the meat itself and then that it gets worked in it gets plated while everybody is sitting and it gets served immediately so i'll take you through a quick walk through my venison tartare so i had a i only actually only used one of the tenderloins because they were pretty good size so i was able to just just put one into the refrigerator and i let it begin to unthaw Overnight, so it was frozen. Now it's gone into the thaw phase, so it's in the refrigerator. Just before uh, we're ready to sit down to eat, um, I make an aioli, and this whole this is the binder, and this is what incorporates a lot of the flavor into the dish. Um, I'm going off of memory here, so I got to make sure I get everything lined up. But I'm I'm putting in a sherry vinegar. I'm putting in an egg yolk. I'm putting in mustard i'm putting in salt and that is the basis of my aioli or well basically a glorified mayonnaise at this point point. and you whisk all this until you begin to have it uh come together you're going to see it thicken up at this point because it's all getting incorporated together and it it's a real workout so you got to whisk that up And you're going to see it go into this liquid state, you're going to see it stay there for a little while, you just got to keep pushing through, and eventually it all starts to come together and then you get to choose the consistency of what you want this to be. I chose to go the little extra mile and try to get it as thickened as I could within that certain amount of time. It wasn't necessarily like a store-bought mayonnaise, but it had some element of um binding going on because that's exactly what we wanted it to do so it was beginning to come together it was beginning to thicken and that's when i decided this is going to be the perfect time to be done um going into that was some chopped, chopped parsley uh some chopped garlic some chopped capers the capers are really supposed to bring that that salty pop that was going into this i didn't have any worcestershire and I didn't have any liquid smoke on me at the moment, I think those two elements would have been nice to add at least a couple drops of each just to get a little of that umami flavor or a little bit of that smokiness to really kind of open up the different elements of uh, that I, what I was throwing in. So unfortunately, I didn't have to add those, but at the same time, I don't, I don't think it uh, hurt it to not have those in. The other thing I added on there was uh, a good amount of black pepper, into the aloe itself. So bringing that all together, it now has almost begins to start to look like a macaroni salad minus macaroni at this point. Like all the elements are coming together, and this is going to be not only the binder, but the flavoring for our piece of meat that's coming in, the tenderloin. I bring out the tenderloin, and now I've got it on my cutting board. At this point, I'm going to want to cut it against the grain. So I cut it against the grain into... Oh, 8th inch slices. And what I'm doing by cutting it against the grain is I'm shortening those grains up so that they're going to end up being able to be very pleasing to the mouth. We're going to be able to have this be a really tender piece of meat that it's not going to have to one of those things we have to chew on. I think the chewing aspect of this would be Uh, maybe distasteful so anyway cut across the grain once i got that across the grain then i could begin to julienne several of these that i cut and so i'm getting a basic now cubed chop of all of these uh all these slices and then i just keep rolling through chop, 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 chop all the way down the one end. I use the width of my blade and I end up folding it back in together, rotating the whole thing and going through a series of chopping again. I'm taking this to a point where it's going to rec- reminisce of uh, burger or grind, but I don't want to take it that far. I don't want to get to the point where I try to, or that it starts to become a smooth texture. I really wanted to go with something that was going to be, <laughs> lack of a better term, chunky. Um, I wanted a really nice chop on these, a, a good hand chop, but I didn't want to get to the point where now it was be start, starting to become uh, ground at this point. All of those pieces, still cold now, go into the aioli. You uh, mix this all together. Uh, then it comes to the plating. I had a good buddy of mine give me a hard time. Grandma, he just likes to give me a hard time anyway. But he's like, why don't you just eat it out of the bowl? Why do do you take it to the point of uh, presentation on this? Why do you go and make it look like a fancy steakhouse, something like you would see at Ruth's Chris? And the whole idea was it's like, well, I could, but at the same time, it doesn't look very appealing just sitting in this mixing bowl. But at the same time, like, again, this was a celebration meal. You take things to the next level. You take things the extra mile. You don't normally add a garnish, but at the same time, we're celebrating not only the animal's life, but we're celebrating the hunt. And together, my wife and I, were celebrating this little bit of her getting a new job and a mini date night to ourselves. So yeah, is it worth it to go the, the extra mile? It is. So you're going to find those in sometimes where it's easier just to throw it on a plate and just start gorging it yourself in it. But I still find... Maybe taking a little extra time and making it look nice. So that's where I went with plating this out. is I needed a way to give myself a ring, but I didn't have necessarily a big enough cookie cutter. So I folded up some tin foil, and I actually used the form of a mason jar. or what was it? No, it was a water bottle I used. But anyway, wrapped it around the size water bottle that I thought would be good, so it was just a perfect circle taped that off, and was able to set that foiled ring on the plate. That was where I could get my beautiful-looking presentation. At that point, I then spooned into that uh, using the tip of the spoon just to basically work it down into the cra- the cracks and crevices uh, of the first layer to the second to the third so that I was getting... I don't, I didn't want to pack it, but I definitely wanted it to come together and hold. Right before serving, I did ask my wife to hold the phone and be like, listen, babe, this is for the gram. We want to make sure that we uh, get a good shot here. So I had her hold the phone. I was able to pull off the tin foil, drop a raw egg on top, salt, pepper the top and add a little bit of a garnish there for our evening uh, appetizer that we had together. I want to tell you that if you have the opportunity to enjoy tartar in the sake of where you're using as a celebration meal that you've gone through the preparation of being able to uh, keep it cold keep it fresh and keep it clean I would say really give this a shot is this something where you want to make it every day where you're eating raw meat no no I wouldn't say that would probably be a good thing and I'm sure every dietitian and doctor would tell you that same thing but as I as I was listening to uh kind of some different ways that other people took this preparation they kept coming to the same conclusion that this is an exciting dish there is a bit of risk in this being that it is raw meat but the experience and the taste is going to be worth it so if you give the proper preparations the proper precautions you're going to find yourself having an exciting dish and that's exactly what we had. Uh, end up, I ended up getting some French bread and cutting that uh, on the bias, adding some oil, throwing that in the oven on broil and getting those like real crispy on the one side, but at the same time chewy on the other. And you're able to then ladle that. Uh, once you break that yolk and it begins to pool on the top, pull off some of that tartare, lay it onto the uh, onto the French bread and enjoy it that way it didn't have an out of world uh, texture it tasted or it had the same texture as a normal steak would it was it felt like I was almost eating a steak at that point but the aioli that had worked itself all the way through it it would coach your mouth and you got all those flavors from the capers from the sherry vinegar that was in there these, these strong pungents all the way to the mellowed out uh aioli that you've got in there between the yolk and the uh the sherry vinegar that's working together in that you could almost you could almost taste this thing just open up as it as it got into your mouth we i prepared this for one tenderloin where if i threw it on to the grill i alone could have eaten this in no time but with as in this preparation and just with the added to added uh aioli to it and and the different elements this was a super filling dish it it totally filled up the two of us in fact i think this was almost like a preparation for like four people and this was just off of one tenderloin we paired it with a uh pretty simple uh pinot noir we wanted to have i wanted to have a little bit of uh some body to that that wine but at the same time i didn't want it to overtake it uh, a, Zinfandel, a Zinfandel would have been too much. And the uh, Cabernet Sauvignon that normally goes with beef is, yeah, it, again, it, it's so dry. I think it would have taken away from the, the venison that we had at this point. So Pinot with the Tartare ended up being an amazing pairing at this point. So I thought this was a super high-end, fun way to do a celebration meal. Do they all have to be like this? No. A lot of times it's going to be the heart. You simply open it up, sear it up and make it make tacos and there ain't nothing wrong with that. But if you do have the opportunity to get super fancy, maybe that might be the chance to do, you know, as we've as we've getting to Now where where people are going back to work and and things are getting busier, and I know right now in our household, between soccer, transitioning into winter sports, uh, school, and just jobs, any time that we can spend with one another is precious. So maybe taking that time to when you're spending it together to really make that special is a really good way to make that celebration meal tops. Well, hey, folks, thank you so much for taking the time to just... Listen to this uh, episode first. A, a thought, a deep thought that I had, and then also my take on on celebration meal that I just had. Folks, we're here in the thick of whitetail season uh, here in Michigan, and I know it's beginning to expand everywhere else. As things are getting closer and closer to the rut, we're starting to see the chase. We're starting to see the activity. Things are going to be starting to get to a fever pitch. So folks, as you get ready for your meals, as you come up here, maybe think about going the extra distance. Or if you uh, happen to see a critter on the road that has just gotten smacked, maybe maybe it's your duty as a person who enjoys venison and who sees the ideal of white-tailed deer to take a second stop and give... Uh, some homage to that animal by either taking the back straps or a hind leg, whatever is salvageable. But whether it's whether you're along the road or even in the kitchen preparing your next meal, make sure the knife that you're using is always sharp.